From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, while only a minor nuisance for some women, for others, urinary incontinence can be debilitating in keeping women from being active or socializing. Research done by the National Institutes of Health shows that between 25 and 45 percent of women have some degree of urinary incontinence, and the problem only gets worse with age. Unfortunately. On today's show, we'll discuss treatment and prevention of urinary incontinence with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll hear about the importance of getting a second opinion. And why thyroid medications may be overprescribed for older adults. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Urinary incontinence, sometimes referred to as UI, is the loss of bladder control resulting in that accidental loss of urine. Now, women are twice as likely as men to suffer from incontinence, and that's for a lot of reasons, pregnancy, childbirth, menopause, and just because the, you know, the anatomy of the female urinary tract is a little bit different. The way you were put together is a little bit different than men, and the, for the most part, it's all good, but yeah, well, the urinary you. tract, a little <laughs> more trouble when it comes to incontinence. Urinary incontinence might be only slightly bothersome for some, while totally debilitating for others. For some women, the chance of embarrassment keeps them from enjoying many physical activities, including exercising. But the good news is effective treatments are available for treating urinary incontinence if women are willing to discuss it with their doctor. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Deborah Leitner. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Leitner. It's so great to have you back. Very nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. Dr. Deb Leitner, you have been working on this problem virtually your entire career, yes. right? Does it still surprise you how many women are incontinent and don't seek help? Yes, it does. There's no doubt about that. Part of that reason is is that historically women have had procedures done that didn't last very long. And so my mom had a bladder tie-up. It didn't last. Well, that's just what happens to me as I get older. So that they won't necessarily ask. But most importantly... We don't ask the question either. Oh, so when a woman goes in for uh, just a regular physical, mm-hmm. that's something that's not covered. Absolutely. Mm. It, does your bladder give you any difficulty? Hmm. So how it? should a woman approach that if their doctor doesn't ask? You can easily just say, look, my, bo- my bladder bothers me. It's more common than hypertension. It's more common than diabetes, and we don't necessarily ask the question. A woman should ask. So we established that incontinence is a problem, but there are different types of incontinence. Yes. So let's talk about that. Absolutely. So the one that you kind of alluded to earlier when you are discussing this was about women are built differently. We have pregnancies. We have uh, significant stressors that are placed on the pelvic floor as we have a child come through the pelvic floor. And those stresses, those stretches, may not give us stress incontinence at the time that we have our babies. We may get better from it. But then once we hit our 50s, we start to have more leakage with activity. Activity. That's called stress incontinence. That means stresses on the pelvic floor make the pelvic floor open up, and then you have urinary incontinence. But there's another very, very important type of incontinence that probably affects people's activities of daily living much more than stress incontinence. Because stress incontinence, I can predict. 
I know that if I cough or I sneeze, I know if I do a jumping jack or if I go on a trampoline, oops, don't go on a trampoline, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's stress incontinence. I can predict it. But what about the leakage that I can't predict? I'm standing in the grocery store in front of the lettuce, and all of a sudden my bladder says, gotcha, mm-hmm. and I pee and I fill my shoes. Now I'm not going to go out to dinner with my friends. I may not go shopping. I may not be able to sit through a movie if I go out with with friends. That kind of incontinence, called urge incontinence, is much more onerous to activities of daily living, much more disruptive of what you like to do, will keep you from traveling, will keep you from visiting friends. Which one is more common? Urge incontinence. Okay. Is it really? Urge incontinence is much more common, and the reason is, is it is much more prevalent as we get older. So stress incontinence... You've had a stretch to your pelvis during childbirth, or maybe you're overweight, maybe you have a chronic cough, and that's going to usually happen in your 50s and maybe your 60s. I can help you a lot with that by just teaching you where your pelvic floor is and strengthening that. Kegel exercises. Mm -hmm. But the urge incontinence is much more common in men and women as we get older, much more common in both genders. So you talked about uh, pregnancies and age being risk uh, factors. What are the other risk factors for that might uh, let women know that they uh, are more likely to develop an incontinence, either type? Well, with stress incontinence, there is another thing. I already mentioned about weight, overall healthy, healthy weight, having a good muscle tone, strength. But there are also a group of women who are much more likely to develop stress incontinence as well as prolapse, things falling down, and that is if they have a lot of joint hypermobility. So if they have very, very stretchy connective tissue, and there's some tests that we can do very easily in the, in the office that will show you whether or not you may be a person who's also at risk. That also tends to run in families. Wait a second. While yeah. you were telling us that, you were just... Pulling yeah, on your, your finger fingers. and putting your I finger was. back. So if you have stretchy joints, you're, if you're the rubber jointed woman, okay. Okay, I'm trying to push yeah. my finger back. Okay. Yeah, exactly. You can get your little finger back to 90 degrees. Yeah. Okay. Is that good or bad? That, that's. I'll tell you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hold off on answering that for okay. just a second. So now the other thing is, can you bend your thumb down and touch your wrist? Aha. Pretty yeah, close. I certainly can. Mm-hmm. And now st- stretch your arm out. Okay. And is your elbow flat at 180 degrees or is it more than 180 degrees? <laughs> I think you better make an appointment. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess. Okay. So joint hypermobility is associated with stretchy connective tissue. You have babies through the pelvis. Your connective tissue tends to be stretchier. Mm-hmm. Now, That puts you at higher risk for prolapse for stress incontinence, but it also means that you're going to be better at gym, gymnastics, (laughs) those sorts of things. Is that true? Good, that's what I'm going to do. Actually, yoga, um, those sorts of things. We're also much more commonly have orthopedic injuries because what will happen is you'll come down, you'll do a layup shot, you'll come down on your ankle, you'll twist your knee, you'll overthrow your shoulder. Those sorts of orthopedic injuries are very, very common in this group of people, and it tends to run in families. Uh, sorry, did, did I miss it? So if you have hypermobility of your mm-hmm. joints, are you more likely to have stress incontinence or urge incontinence? Stress or incontinence. Stress incontinence. And uh, pelvic floor weakness, pelvic floor prolapse. I would imagine then you team that up with having a couple of kids, and I should probably make an appointment with you. <laughs> Only if you have <laughs> symptoms. Okay, That's very it. good. That's it. I'll just keep your number on my Rolodex. Okay. <laughs> All right, so if you have stress incontinence, are you more likely to get urge incontinence too, or are the two of them completely separate? 
They are related, but think of them as separate, uh, so that it really depends upon which is the most onerous to you, which bothers you the most. For many, many women, it's the urge incontinence that bothers them the most. Now, if you like to play tennis and you can't serve without having leakage, that's stress incontinence, and we may want to address that further with behavioral treatments and sometimes with surgical procedures. But I would also like to stress that if you come in to see me and I immediately say a surgery rather than behavioral, you should say, mm, I think I'll go see someone else. That's you right. wouldn't do Second that. Second opinion. Yep, absolutely. We're with urologist Dr. Deb Leitner, and we're talking about urinary incontinence in the female. We have been told that there are two different types of incontinence, stress incontinence, urge incontinence, urge incontinence being much more common than stress. We've talked about the risk factors, children, obesity. Did I miss anything there? Uh, Oh, hypermobility. Hypermobility, (laughs) chronic cough. Um, If you're just not healthy, if you just aren't strong, that's going to put you at risk for stress incontinence. As well. And, of course, aging. As you get older, this is a, pro- a, a, a problem that's much more common in the older a woman. Privilege. Yeah. A privilege. A privilege of yeah. aging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, myth or matter of fact, Americans should drink eight glasses of water a day. Is that a myth or is that a fact? We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with urologist and female incontinence expert, Dr. Deb Leitner of the Mayo Clinic. And we'll start off with myth or matter of fact before we talk about the treatment of this most common problem. Yeah, myth or matter of fact, uh, Americans should drink eight glasses of water a day. Is that a myth or is that a fact? We've heard it time and time again. (laughs) That is a myth. Why? Okay. It is important to have a healthy diet, but that eight glasses of water, eight ounces, eight glasses a day, translates directly into eight voids because it's a, lot a bladder of water. holds a bladder holds about eight to ten ounces. Hmm. So that if you drink that much water, you should expect that you should have at least eight voids. Now, what we would really hope is that most of the f- the fluids that you get are in fruits and vegetables. They're about eighty percent water. So that that is going to contribute to your overall hydration during the day. Many of the patients that I see with urge and urge incontinence have it solely because they are compulsive water drinkers. So the fact is that you should drink when you're thirsty. No, that's actually not a great idea either, because unfortunately what happens if I tell somebody to do that, and they're used to drinking eight glasses of water, eight ounces, they carry a water bottle around with them always, and I tell them, no, let thirst be your guide, they're already habituated to that high fluid intake. And they think, well, i got to drink. I'm, I'm dehydrated. They get thirstier they get, faster. They get thirstier faster because it's become very habitual. Okay, then is it the color of your urine that should guide you? No, the okay. color of your urine isn't a good one <laughs> we're either. We're going to get the right answer here no. pretty soon. Okay. We're, gonna, we're <laughs> yeah, dispelling exactly. myths is yeah. what we're doing. The reason is, is that many of us are taking, taking multivitamins, mm-hmm. and those multivitamins may color our urine. So, yes, that is true. It, you know, if you have particularly if you make kidney stones. There are some medical conditions when you should be drinking extra water, and kidney stones is one of them. So we'll routinely tell those people to have their urine be clear. But you and I do not need to hydrate to that degree. All right. So, okay, we're ta- so what's the answer? Yeah, how much, wa- how much do, what are some guidelines for drinking water? 
water. <laughs> I don't know that you have to drink any additional water for medical reasons alone. All right. Well, that's good. Eight is way too many, unless you are a kidney stone former. We kidney, have, there are some medical reasons why doctors will tell you to, to drink extra fluids, but that's not what we're talking about here. The majority of the people that I see don't have a medical reason to consume as much fluid as they do. So whether it's stress incontinence or urge incontinence, let's just back up even further and just say, what is normal? What is normal? Normal people void six mm-hmm. to seven times a day, eight to ten ounces each void. All right, six to seven times, times a, day, a day, eight to ten ounces per. I'm not measuring. Yeah. I'm just thinking how many times do I go a day. But you don't need to measure. That's the whole point. That's the beauty of the way our bodies are able to metabolize fluids and keep us healthy is that our bodies, our kidneys, will normally regulate the fluids that we, I'm uh, sorry, normally regulate the urine production that we make based upon our, in, our intake. All right, so we got to talk about treatment. So we know sure. this is a common problem. When we talk about treatment, do, do we need to divide it up into stress and urge, or can we talk about treatment for both of them at the same time? Behavioral treatment is the primary way to treat incontinence regardless of its type. All right, behavioral. Behavioral. All right, let's start. How do you, Kegels, Kegels, which is it? Sure. Um, actually, the gynecologist who first described that passed away many, many years ago, so I'm not sure how he pronounced his last name, <laughs> um, but we usually say Kegels. Okay. So, Tell us about those. Well, Kegels are useful for women because they strengthen the pelvic floor, and most of us were kind of taught, oh, you pat it on the back, go do your Kegels, come on, go on, go do your Kegels, <laughs> but we actually never tested to see whether or not a woman could identify her pelvic floor how long the how strong the contractions were and how what kind of endurance they had so that during a, a routine physical exam what I'll do is I'll say I'm going to put my finger in your vagina like a tampon and then I want you to squeeze those muscles if you, as if you're going to interrupt your stream or as if you're going to keep yourself from passing gas and what you'd like is to be able to have at least a two second hold with some additional lift okay so who cares I can mm-hmm. do my kegels yay mm-hmm. that's good for me But I should use those Kegels when, for example, I cough or sneeze. Just Mm. as I would cover my mouth, I'm going to do a Kegel and tighten that pelvic floor to reduce the likelihood that I'll have stress incontinence with that activity. So that's behavior, behavior modification. More importantly, uh, you're standing in the grocery store near the lettuce, and your bladder says, "Uh uh-uh, I gotcha. I'm going (laughs) to soak your shoes. What you do first is you don't run to the bathroom because that's like trying to run with a full glass of water. You're not going to make it. What you do is you stop. And you do a series of what we call quick flicks. With your pelvic floor, you say, no, no, no. I told you no. (laughs) You're squeezing the pelvic floor rapidly. And what it does is through the sacral arc, through the lower spinal cord, it will turn around and tell the bladder, okay, not right now. And your urge will disappear. And then you can safely go to the bathroom and void. Is the same thing work for men? Absolutely. Yeah. Only in men, we don't call it Kegel exercises because he was a gynecologist. <laughs> we call it Janaise, spelled like Janet, but with the little French. Mm. Yeah. Oh, really? But it's the same thing? It's the exact same thing. And men are worse at doing Janae exercises than women are at doing Kegels. <laughs> really? They're just yeah. not very responsible, are they? But you know what? <laughs> we don't buy lettuce. So That's for us, it. it's, it's not a big problem. That's it. I'd say if you have a leaky bladder, that... that it becomes pretty important really fast. Yes. Well, for men, men don't leak. Men, for the most part, have the urgency, but they don't usually have the leakage. Women leak, again, because of that difference in anatomy. Men have extra apparatus there that keep them drier than 
Sure. We are. All right. Okay, let's, uh, yeah. We, we uh, more treatment have, options. So right. if you've got behavior modification with the Kegels, what mm-hmm. else? I'd want to look at your bladder diary. Very important. Before I see anybody who's got bladder symptoms, I want a two-day bladder diary. I want to know what they're drinking, and I want to know what they're voiding. Importantly, I want to know how much they're voiding, what their inner void interval is, and how many of those um, activities are related with leakage. That will help me make the diagnosis and start right then and there discussing how we're going to modify behavior. And uh, how do you do that? The things that we've talked about, but if all that isn't working and they're still incontinent, then what do you do? So incontinence with stress incontinence, and it's really bothersome to your activities of daily living. Your Kegels are good and strong. Then we're going to talk about some other options, whether that's bulking agents or slings or those sorts of surgical yeah, you procedures. S- you said before the break, though, that if you go to see any urologist and they start talking about or surgery right away, yeah, yeah. and yeah. they t- start talking about surgery right away, then you're in the wrong office. I think so. I think so. All right, bulking agents, start there. and then. Sure, bulking agents is the, just the injection of material around the bladder neck to literally kind of poof it up um, and make women less likely to have leakage. It's rarely effective in men. Um, but the problem with bulking agents right now in 2017 is they just don't last. There is something on the horizon which won't be ready for me, but perhaps for others in the future, <laughs> and that's where we can actually grow muscle, your own muscle, um, from a biopsy, and grow it in on a plate, have it sent back, and then I can inject your own muscle into you that will actually function as an augment to your sphincter and reduce your stress. Wow. And, it, and it's an injection. I yes, mean, it doesn't it's an injection. require a, a, Nope, not well, a surgeon. And when might that be available? Um, it's, Tracy it's right will still now, be around. It's, exactly. Yeah. It's right now in clinical trials. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. All right. So that's an option. What else? A sling. So that we talked a little bit about in terms of the pelvic floor supports not being perfect. And so when the pelvic floor rotates down and the bladder neck opens and then you have leakage, you can place materials around the bladder neck to create a hammock to make you less likely to have urinary leakage with activities. Successful most of the time? Successful most of the time. But do the behavior modifications get you? Behavioral modifications are primary, absolutely. 60 to 75% of women will find that the leakage that they have no no longer bothers their activities of daily living if they use the behavioral techniques we described. Wow, pretty incredible. Urologist Dr. Deb Leitner, also incontinence expert, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the value of getting a second opinion. And later on in the program, we'll learn more about thyroid medications. Are they overprescribed in older individuals? Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Can you buy healthy foods and still stick to a budget? Absolutely. Here are six tips from nutritionist Kathy Dimeke. Number one, eat at home. So eating out is going to take up a lot of your food budget. Two, meal plan. Before you go, go grocery shopping, make a list of what you're going to make that week. Three, cook once, eat twice. Do a few extra chicken breasts and you can maybe slice that up and put it on a salad the next day for lunch. Or the next night you can make some quesadillas. Four, buy in bulk. But be sure you'll use everything that you buy before it expires. Otherwise, you're not saving. This is especially true when you're buying produce. So if you find your produce is going to waste, go to the grocery store a little bit more frequently during the week. Or buy frozen produce. Five, 
Clip coupons, check store flyers or promotions, and check out smartphone apps. 6. Freeze leftovers right away if you're not going to eat them soon. Ways to eat healthy foods and stick to your budget. There's no question that exercise is good for you. There are over 50 benefits to exercise. If we had a pill that could do that, we'd be prescribing it for everyone. Mayo Clinic nutrition expert Dr. Donald Hendrude says some doctors are actually pulling out the prescription pad and prescribing exercise. This is a powerful statement. It tells the patient that this is just as important as any medication you take. In fact, it's more important. Exercise decreases your risk of type 2 diabetes, lowers blood pressure, improves cholesterol levels, reduces risk of heart disease, helps with weight management, improves symptoms of depression, boosts mood, the list goes on. The American Heart Association recommends you get two and a half hours of moderate exercise or an hour and 15 minutes of vigorous exercise every week. And you don't have to join the gym. Just move more because it can improve your health. And in other news, this time of year when the weather is steamy and hot, many people reach for a super cold drink, ice cream, or a popsicle. And bam, brain freeze. So-called ice cream headaches are brief stabbing headaches that can happen when you eat, drink, or inhale something cold. Officially known as cold stimulus headaches, they can also happen when you suddenly expose your unprotected head to cold temperatures, like diving into cold water. So here's a little more into why they happen. Ice cream headaches are caused by cold material moving across the warm roof of your mouth and the back of your throat. Scientists are still unsure about the exact mechanism that causes this pain, but one theory is that the cold food or drink may temporarily alter blood flow in your nervous system, causing a brief headache. Blood vessels constrict to prevent the loss of body heat, then relax again to let blood flow rise. This results in a burst of pain that subsides once the body adapts to the temperature change. It is a good thing that they go away quickly. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, a new Mayo Clinic study found more than one in five patients who were referred for a second opinion may have been incorrectly diagnosed by their health care provider. Wow. The study looked at medical records of nearly 300 patients and found that about 20% of the time, the final diagnosis was completely different from the original diagnosis. Oh my goodness. Here to discuss the findings and the importance of a second opinion is the lead author of the study, Dr. James Nasons. Dr. Nasons is a researcher with the Robert D. and Patricia E. Kern Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Nasons. Thank you. Dr. Nasons, nice to meet you. Nice to have you on the program. So tell us about the study and what prompted you to do it. Okay. Well, first, a few of my clinical colleagues came to me with a study where they were comparing the referrals from primary care physicians to primary care nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And they were really looking at the quality of those referrals in terms of what the content was, was it appropriate, things like this. And uh, they asked, because they knew I was a health services researcher and had worked with them in the past, if we could help them out with some measures of complexity of the patients. So I said, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. (laughs) And uh, we've been looking at value of particular care within Mayo within the center for a number of years. And one of the things that we really didn't have much information on was how often do we change a diagnosis? Hmm. What is that value of a second opinion? And so we asked them, 
could you review what the initial presenting problems were, what did the patient come with, and what was our final diagnosis? And how often do we change those? And mm-hmm. how often do we potentially change the direction that the patient goes? So they did their study, basically comparing those quality re- outcomes and how good the referrals were, and then they looked at our information. Uh, both of the clinicians reviewed every case and kind of determined which of the three buckets did that patient fall into. Was it a case where we just reconfirmed what the problem came with? Was it something where the patient came with a, a complex of symptoms and we further worked it out and figured out what the problem was? Or did the patient come with one issue and we basically said, no, you really you have a different problem. This is where you should go. And so we were, um, we got that information back. We did see that among those primary care provider referrers, that the nurse practitioner, physician's assistants, and the physicians didn't differ. So that was another interesting thing, that, that the change in diagnosis occurred the same rates across the two groups. Showing the value of those nurse practitioners and the PAs. This is true. Did the results surprise you? The results did. Um, we've seen some uh, previous literature uh, that basically looked at uh, provider refer, well, actually at, at patient referrals and at some of the e-consult referrals. And in most of those cases, the this is, sorry, explain what an e-consult oh, okay. is. Okay. <clears throat> so rather than having the patient come for a second opinion and what's going on, you basically have a, a specialist or another group of physicians review the medical records and some of the lab results and some of the x-rays. And without seeing the patient, they make a determination, is that initial diagnosis correct or not? And there are uh, big programs, including some of our own, uh, where um, a patient can turn to these people, provide them with their information, and get a second opinion. Yeah, fabulous program. Sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. But um, in those cases, it's usually around 10% of the time that there actually might be a change in diagnosis. So I was surprised by the extent of change that we saw. 20% of the time, one out of of five people that you reviewed had their diagnosis changed when they came to the Mayo Clinic. Yes. Have you followed up to know what the, the, the consequences were? Were these radically different diagnoses, I guess is what I'm trying to get at, mm-hmm. so that if they had been treated for condition A as they were originally diagnosed, the, the treatment would have differed markedly from what they were ultimately diagnosed with? One of the limitations of our study was that we did not do the follow-up on the patients, so we didn't actually see what happened, but we did have the patient here in person The uh, Mayo team, which was a team of specialists, did further tests. They did further uh, consults to get specialists. And so we we clearly brought more resources to the table to evaluate those problems are. Can't say that we were absolutely right. The original diagnosis was absolutely wrong. But we have reason to believe that we were probably more likely correct than the original one. And there were some instances where there were major changes in that. Um, where if you would have gotten treatment for the first problem, it could have caused more problems. It could have not addressed what your underlying issues were. Would your study suggest, and do you now suggest, that virtually everybody get a a second opinion no matter what they've been diagnosed with? That's uh, one of the conclusions that some of the headlines on the article kind of addressing it have suggested, and we say no. It's not 20% of the time that you go visit a primary care provider that they're going to be wrong. These were clearly patients who were referred by the provider. 
So the provider either had some reason to believe that they wanted a second opinion, they weren't certain what was going on, or the patient wanted a second opinion and the provider agreed to help facilitate that issue. I will say from from the standpoint of uh, surgery, I think it's always a good idea to get a, get a second opinion. It's a little that's a little bit different, mm-hmm. but uh, in fact, I always encourage it in my patients if there's if there's some question in their mind about whether or not it's the the right thing to do. This is very true. And uh, one of my uh, colleagues in the general field, Dr. Mark uh, Graber, had kind of initiated this effort of diagnostic error a number of years ago, and he's president of the Association of Diagnostic Error. And uh, he was uh, actually asked about our study, and uh, he quoted that uh, there were probably about two or three conditions that clearly merited that a patient should get a second opinion. It's something very serious, something that would require uh, uh, invasive treatments. If you've been uh, diagnosed and started a treat with a medical regimen and, and you're not responding as you're expected to retreat, or if the provider clearly has uh, some ideas that, that they're not comfortable in making that conclusion and they want to seek out second opinions. Wow, great study, well done, and I'm so glad that you were here to share the information with us. And in a lot of instances, just as you have outlined, a second opinion is a good idea. This is true. Professor of Health Services Research, College of Medicine, Dr. James Nasons, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, thyroid medication, do you really need to be taking it? We'll ask a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Do you realize or do you know what the most commonly prescribed medication in the United States is? I'll give you a hint. I would have said statins or some sort of uh, antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication. That's what it used to be. If you did guess thyroid medication, specifically levothyroxine, you would be correct. Levothyroxine is used to treat hypothyroidism. Your own thyroid gland doesn't produce enough thyroid hormone. 21.5 million Americans take levothyroxine. Well, a recent study published in the New England Journal of Medicine suggests that not all of these people, um, especially older adults, are really benefiting from taking it. Here to discuss thyroid medication is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Juan Brito. Welcome to the program. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Brito. Oh, thank you for having me. Dr. Brito, good to have you. So the recent study suggested that not everyone who is taking thyroid replacement needs to be taken. Do you agree with that? Yes, I completely agree with that. But before we, we move to the, the reason why they found that, it's important to clarify that there are two kinds of hypothyroidism. Oh. So the first class is when your thyroid levels are actually low. And in that case, giving the medicine makes absolutely sense. You're just replacing what is needed. Your thyroid hormone level is low. Exactly. So the thyroid is not producing enough. Is producing 80, 60, 50, 40 percent. So the physician will find that something is abnormal in your blood test and will give you the medicine just to normalize the values. So that is completely pretty clear cut. Pretty clear cut. The second, which is more frequently found, but very common, is when your thyroid levels are actually normal in your blood, but the signal from the brain is high, suggesting that your brain is sending a signal to the thyroid just to tell the thyroid to work more. 
that we call subclinical hypothyroidism. Subclinical, yeah. So the prevalence of the common and more frequent hypothyroidism is about 0.2% of the population. Just a few number of people have the, the real hypothyroidism. But the subclinical one in which the levels are normal, but the signal coming from the brain is high, is actually in 12% of people. So that's a large, large number. So what you're saying is that those people, just because the signal is high, despite the fact that the hormone level is normal, they're being treated? Yes, the majority of those people get treated. So what the study was analyzing is in, in elderly people who have this subclinical hypothyroidism, what was the benefit of giving them thyroid hormone? And they analyzed the data by one year, and they found that there is not benefit from the outcomes that they were measuring. Wait a second. Why give that? Why do that anyway? No matter if they're elderly or not, if their thyroid level is is where it normal. should be, mm-hmm. is normal. Why would you give a person thyroid medication anyway? No matter what their age. That's a very good question. And and. There are, fr- there are some triggers of treatment. So there are some reasons why clinicians are treating these people. One of those is that the experts have different opinions about it. So different guidelines about the treatment for hypothyroidism might recommend treatment, and some others might not recommend any treatment. So that is one. So clinicians get these mixed signals about when to treat and how to treat. The second one is that uh, the symptoms of hypothyroidism, the one that really the levels are low, are very vague. So they are fatigue, hair loss, dry skin, weight gain. So that they usually happen in normal people with no conditions. As they get older. As they get older. Oh, mm-hmm. even yeah. you know young people, but yes. Yeah. Uh, so imagine that you have the combination of someone complaining of this and someone checking the thyroid just to make sure that everything is normal. Now you find something abnormal in the test and the patient having the symptoms. So they tend to come together as, oh, maybe we should treat as a way to see how ha- what happens. But what ended up happening is that these patients get the treatment. Sometimes they don't feel any benefit, but then they never are asked to stop the medicine. Oh. So they continue this medicine forever and becomes one of the medicines that patients just get in the list right. and they are difficult to actually step down. Well, that's what once I've always thought. Once you're on levothyroxine, you're on it for the rest of your life. Exactly. So that is the, the common belief, and it's, it's, not accurate, it's not actually true. You can actually sometimes challenge that by stopping the medicine and see what happens with the levels. Is there a side effect, or is there is levothyroxine bad? Well, yes. Uh, if if the dose is, is all right, it should not have any side effects. The typical side effects. But the medicine itself has to be taken in specific situations. So it has to be taken in empty stomach, 45 minutes before breakfast, every day of your life. You have to get it refilled. So there are other things that we don't always consider. But there's something that takes time to do it. On top of everything, if the doctor doesn't get it right or the patient is getting it, uh, it, taking the medicine in the wrong way, they can actually get the over-treatment effect. So they can get the, what we call hyperthyroid symptoms, which are Hyper, the op- too hyper, much. Exactly, too okay. much. So they start feeling uh, the completely opposite, shaky, uh, palpitations, okay. the weight loss, symptoms that, you know, are really, really uh, difficult to handle. Hmm. So there is one study, for instance, they, they, the study found that almost 50% of elderly people initiated on levothyroxine therapy at one point in therapy, they were over-treated. So 50%. 
and the majority of these people, they don't require thyroid hormone wow. to start with. So there is, imagine this is the most prescribed drug in the United States, the third most prescribed drug in UK. And there is the potential of being over-treated with this, yeah. but not really significant benefits. So what should patients do if it's the most prescribed drug? Do you just, the next time you have your follow-up with your general practitioner, do you just say, can we double-check this? What should we be doing? So one of the things is, is to make sense of why you are taking this drug. So there might be patients that get some benefit. And in fact, uh, there might be true that even the blood levels are normal. It, there is might be a threshold in which even though this, the, the levels are normal, the signal from the brain is telling you that it's likely to fail very soon. Hmm. So yes, some patients actually might benefit of this, but they are not the majority. So when you are a patient taking levothyroxine, it's important to go back and the reason why you started taking it. If the symptoms that were supposed to improve by that did not get any better, well, you are getting your answer already that perhaps the medicine is not for you. Hmm. And you might want to step down the medicine reassess in a few months and see what the levels are and see what the symptoms are. And the same works the same works when you are taking the medicine for the first time. Just makes sense that is a goal and then it's a horizon when or how to stop it. So I always tell my patients if we're gonna start this pathway, let's reconvene again in a few months. And if symptoms have not improved whatsoever, well I think the answer is there. So the patients really that you're talking about, without making it too complex, but expanding a little bit on what you've said is, you're talking about the patients who have a normal thyroid hormone level but have an elevated TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. So the thyroid-stimulating hormone being high would suggest that your body is telling your thyroid to produce more hormone, but your blood test shows that it, in fact, is normal. So in, in you're saying that those patients don't really need to be treated. The majority of those patients, they don't. But again, there is a small group of patients in which the signal for the brain, the TSH value, is rising or going really um, above above 10 or 20, so very high numbers. It's telling you that it's very likely that that thyroid will fail very soon. But the majority of patients, they don't have that. They just have a slightly abnormal value. And to compound everything, it seems now that elderly people, people about 65, actually have normal high values of TSH. So the brain normally, as we age, sends a higher signal to the thyroid. All right, levothyroxine, the most commonly prescribed drug in the United States, and you may not need to be taking it. Thanks so much, endocrinologist, hormone doctor, Dr. Juan Burrito. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.